Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever-so-slight Apple bias. Today is Saturday, July 3rd, 2021, and this is show number 843. Well, I'm pushing the show out a few days early because we're spending the 4th of July with Lindsay and Nolan and the grandkids. But I couldn't leave you without a show, of course, and I didn't want to do it a bunch of days late either. This does mean that there will be no live show on Sunday because of fireworks and other Independence Day goings on, so I hope you can get by for an entire week without it. Now, I'm the one who's really going to suffer here because I'm recording all by myself. It's such a big difference not having the audience there. Even though I can't see you, I know you're there. And the hardest part is going to be remembering all the chapter marks because Kevin is always the one who reminds me to put them in. So if there's any missing this week, it's all on me. In this week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond, Melissa Davis, also known as the Mac Mommy, joins me to give us her tips for setting up an iPhone for a vintage user in a dignified way. If you've ever heard Melissa on the Geekiest Show Ever podcast she does with Elisa Pacelli, you know she's a fantastic resource to the community. Her gentle voice and compassionate personality can help guide us in helping our vintage friends and family. She's got concrete, specific suggestions for how to configure the iPhone and how to listen to the person you're helping so you can ensure that the phone will bring them joy when you're done. Melissa actually wrote up a fantastic blog post of all of the tips as a reference guide for you after you listen, and the notes include even more suggestions that we didn't have time to get to in the episode. Even if you don't need to help anyone with their iPhone right now, I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to Melissa describe how she helps others. You can find this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond Light in your podcatcher of choice, or of course, there's a link in the show notes. I have been busy on the podcast circuit in the last few weeks, and I wanted to highlight some of my appearances. Last week was Accessibility Week on the Daily Tech News Show, where Tom and Sarah had guests with varied disabilities, where they would talk about the interesting things in tech that helped them. On Tuesday, I got to guest host with them, and the guest was David Woodbridge. You may remember David from his appearance on Chit Chat Across the Pond two years ago, where he talked about some new Android devices that he was testing out. David is blind and works for the Vision Store in Australia, and he tests all kinds of gear for accessibility for the visually impaired. It was great fun hanging out with David again, and it's always a blast recording with the DTNS folks. So take a look in your podcatcher of choice or on the web for Daily Tech News Show number 4057, and that's uh, from June 22nd. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. I also want to point you to an episode of DTNS from Accessibility Week, and that was Friday, June 25th's episode, where they had Christoph Zajek Denik on talking about his lived experience with the accessibility needs as a person with dwarfism. You'll remember him from his awesome appearance on Chit Chat Across the Pond number 683. Heck, you know what? That whole week was awesome. Check them all out by subscribing to DTNS in audio or video in your podcatcher of choice. Okay, one last plug for this week. Ken Ray of macOS Ken fame has a podcast called In a Few Minutes. This show features one guest who is on every day for a week, and the show is only around 15 minutes per day. Behind the scenes, this is recorded in one sitting, so if you binge them one after another, they kind of hang together as one plot with five subjects. Last week, I was on the show, and the five subjects were really, really interesting. On Monday, he asked me what was news to me, where I had to come up with something surprising from the tech Apple News. Tuesday, we got more serious as the two of us debated whether Apple has an obligation to get out of China if they're going to keep saying that privacy is a human right. Wednesday was a lot lighter when we talked about the coolest and most iconic Apple stores we've been to. 
On Thursday, we got totally away from tech, and he asked me to tell him about a good story that had an impact on me. And I told him about one of my favorite books. But Friday was my favorite day where he told me I could invite any three people to a dinner party with me and they didn't have to be alive or speak my language because all that would be taken care of. And who would those three people be? I really enjoyed deciding on my three people and Ken loved my answer. You can find In A Few Minutes on the In A Few Minutes podcast in your podcatcher of choice, of course, and look for the weekending Friday, June 25th if you want to hear me having fun with Ken. And as always, there's a link in the show notes. In a little bit, you're going to learn about how Steve and I are having solar panels added to our home, and I hope the information I'll give you might help you to be able to make your own decisions about solar. One part that I'm not really going to dwell on is that for the better part of a day, the power had to be disconnected from our home as the electricians moved the power to come through our solar panels and into our electrical panel. As a purely precautionary measure, Steve decided to unplug all of our big-ticket items beforehand so we wouldn't have any danger to our devices if there was a big power surge when the power was reconnected. Now, I know you're wondering how we possibly survived without power for six hours, but don't worry about that. Our awesome neighbor, Rick, threw an extension cord over the fence, and we dragged it into the kitchen window so we could play on our laptops while tethering from our phones. But the reason I bring this up is that when the power came back on, we had a bit of a problem getting our internet working again. I plugged in our main Eero, that's the one plugged into the Frontier Fios modem in a different room. The indicator light went to a slow pulsing white. It didn't give us any internet, so I then checked the modem and it hadn't been plugged in yet. Well, that would slow it down. Well, I plugged it in and I waited for a bit and it came up with a red globe light on the front. I mentioned this to Steve and he discovered that from the outside box, um, we have a box called an ONT. That's from Frontier. It's part of the FIO service. They had unplugged that because the electricians were still using that same outlet for a drill. They plugged our ONT back in and in a bit, the Frontier modem got a happy white light on the globe. I tested the internet connection of the modem by plugging in an ethernet cable directly into the modem. And sure enough, I was online, but the era was still pulsing white. I unplugged it for a bit, plugged it back in, only to get the same result. Now, I looked at the Eero troubleshooting guide, which is really good, and they suggested doing a soft reset, which is merely holding down a tiny button on the back or bottom of the Eero, depending on the model. I was fully prepared to do that until I read this one section. It said, A soft reset will clear all network configurations from the Eero, but preserve its sessions. This keeps the Eero on your network and saves its logs and advanced settings such as IP reservations and port forwarding configurations. Well, I wasn't exactly sure what they meant to clear all network configurations, but still keep it on the network and keep IP reservations and port forwarding. The only thing I could think of that's left that they might be removing would be all of the names that I have painstakingly added to my plethora of devices. One of the great things about Eero is that as each new device joins the network, you get a notification. And if the MAC address gives any kind of a clue to the manufacturer and type of device, the name will be set to that type of device. For example, it will know if an iPad joins the network because the MAC address for that device will self-identify as an iPad from Apple. But if you connect a device that's more of a mass market device that's been repackaged, like say a WiseCam, the MAC address simply says something like IEEE7630. That is not helpful at all. If you connect a WiseCam to your network and you get the notification from Eero, right at that moment, you can jump in and name it Living Room WiseCam before you forget which one it was. Steve and I have done this legwork, or I don't know, do you call it finger work? <laughs> With tons of devices, and I didn't want to lose all that work. 
I called my good friend Pat Dangler because she installs a lot of Eros for clients, and she suggested I call Eero on the phone. Wait, the, the telephone? Like it's 1987? Who does that? Well, anyway, Pat claimed that Eero's phone support was really good, so I decided to give it a try. I am happy to report that my new friend Justin at Eero was fabulous. We were on the phone for about a half hour, of which maybe two minutes was waiting for my turn to get help. He explained that no, a soft reset would not erase all of my painstakingly entered device names, or at least he'd never seen it do that before. We did the soft reset, and now we got a red pulsing light. He said that means we need to reset the Frontier Fios modem. I told him I thought that was silly because it had been unplugged for hours, and because it was clearly working since wired Ethernet worked from it. He said he was sure it would help, so we unplugged it for a full two minutes. As always, whenever there are long wait times with customer support, like two whole minutes, I give the person my usual line of, so do you like tech podcasts? Well, either Justin is super polite and good at faking it, or he was actually interested in hearing about all of the PodFeed podcasts. After the unplug replug dance with the modem, the Eero was now pulsing blue. Okay, white isn't good. Red is obviously bad. Blue should be good. But I was still not getting a Wi-Fi signal that would get me onto the internet with it. Justin said that he could tell from his end that the Eero was trying to connect, and I really should have asked, how did he know that if the devices were still offline? In any case, one more reset of the Fios modem and two more minutes for me to plug the podcast to him, and then the modem was happy and the Eero was happy and we were back in business. Now, the main reason I wanted to tell you this story is that I wanted to let you know that if you have an Eero mesh system or you're considering one like my friend Mark is, Eero has terrific phone support on which you can rely. I think it's important to think about the level of support you get when you buy something as expensive as a mesh network. Hello, Allison and fellow Nisla Castaways. This is Nightwise from the Nightwise.com podcast checking in, and reports of my demise have been greatly exaggerated because I'm back. Not only back on the podcast, but I'm also back on the Mac. I've been an Apple user for years now, and I've always enjoyed their high-quality products. And I was actually fairly disappointed when in 2018 I bought a MacBook Pro. Yeah, you know, the ones with the butterfly keyboards. The butterfly keyboards where the entirety of Apple keeps saying there is nothing wrong with them, but they are absolutely terrible, terrible, terrible to use. I've had the machine for over two years now, and I have to say that I have not been using it as much, and one of the reasons was that rickety-rackety keyboard. I had it replaced because invisible dust was jamming up the keys, but, you know, after the replacement, it still sounded like I was typing on a cardboard box at the rate of somebody who is extremely frustrated with whatever is wrong in the world. No matter if I was typing softly, it always sounded like I was typing an angry flame letter. Not the case. Last week, we finally retired our 2014 MacBook Pro and i7 16GB after seven years of constant use. We've been using it in the company and uh, it was time to move on. So I passed my MacBook Pro along to my wife, thinking that this might be a good thing. She hated it from the get-go and there was only one reason. What kind of a itty keyboard is this, and indeed. So I thought, what do we do? 
and I decided to go back to the Mac. I decided to buy an M1 MacBook Air. It was on sale and I got a discount of about 300 euros on the 16 gigabyte 256 gig SSD model. I decided to take the plunge. Although the MacBook M1, uh, the MacBook Air is a beloved design, the M1 processor was still unknown territory. But I went for it and I gotta say, I loved it. I loved it so much that I actually bought two. In one week, we uh, decommissioned our fleet of MacBooks. One of them was aging. One of them just had a rickety tickety keyboard with two MacBook Airs. And boy, am I impressed. It has not been since the days of the first white MacBook or the Snowbook that I have been so impressed with an Apple product. The keyboard, let's start there, is absolutely blissful. It is a fantastic piece of design and I am very, very happy that Apple finally listened and let the terrible butterfly keyboard, or what was it called, uh, go. And uh, the new keyboard is excellent to type on. The form factor is a, well, let's call it a classic. The MacBook Air has a classic wedge design that sits snug as a bug in my bag, and it's delightful to carry around. But as opposed to the original MacBook Airs, which were kind of slow, this thing is fast. My God, this thing is fast. I decided to go with the 16 gigabyte version because I just wanted to make sure that I had some RAM to do some video editing, but the 265 gigabyte SSD was fine by me because, you know, half of it's in the cloud of, uh, anyway. So, okay. But playing around with this device, even with some non-native apps that are still running in Rosetta, makes you realize just how fast this machine is. Uh, I am uh, using DaVinci Resolve for video editing. I'm using Audacity for audio editing, Chrome for browsing, you know, the whole thing. Though these things are not really used just to surf around on the web. They're actually production machines and they can hold their own. Well, what can I say? After two decades of buying Apple products that were astronomical in price but quite high in quality, I am amazed and surprised, pleasantly surprised, that the new MacBook Airs are not only fast, they are actually quite cheap and they give you a very good bang for the buck. Suffice to say, I am back in the Apple cam full-time working on this thing together with my iPad Pro and Sidecar to have a dual-screen experience wherever I go, keeping you posted on everything I mess around with and hopefully uh, I can contribute to anybody who is still on the fence about whether or not to go for the M1. I only have one advice. If you are planning on getting an M1, you shouldn't have gotten one yesterday. Well, Nightwise, it is so good to hear from you again. Uh, for those of you who haven't been listening for a long time, Nightwise used to contribute quite often, and I hope this means he's going to keep doing it again because he's always got an interesting perspective. I, um, I'm really intrigued by how universally loved the M1 MacBook Air is. Uh, makes me a little tempted to get one, but I'm still holding out hoping for a 14-inch MacBook Pro uh, to come out pretty soon. I sure hope it does. Thanks again, Nightwise. This was fantastic. I don't know if you've noticed, but it sure seems to be getting a lot hotter outside. I remember about six years ago when we started seeing late summer temperatures occasionally hitting the 90s. I'd whine about the temperature, and my friends in places like Arizona and Texas would inevitably tell me how much hotter it was where they lived. 
I would always politely point out that they have air conditioning in their homes because it's always hot. I would go on to explain that in the coastal cities of Southern California, air conditioning has never been necessary. The climate is temperate and we're cooled by the ocean breeze. These infrequent temperature spikes were a mere nuisance. But each year, those infrequent temperature spikes have been happening more and more often. I will admit that I'm a big whiner when it comes to hot weather, but I do feel my complaints are legitimate as a podcaster. For example, when I'm recording a video tutorial for Screencast Online, I have to have my door closed, my windows closed, a thick sound isolation blanket over the window for sound isolation, like I said, and I'm wearing headphones. You can imagine how delightful that is when the temperature inside is pushing, say, the high 90s or 100 degrees. I tell Steve often that the best podcasting investment I've ever made is my Dyson fan. I did a write-up about the $300 Dyson AM06 just a year ago, along with my explanation of the sound isolation blanket that we had made. I know, $300 for a fan sounds ridiculously expensive, but it doesn't just cool me, it also makes no noise so I can actually use it while I'm podcasting. But year after year, as climate change accelerates, the temperature continues to rise and our high temperatures are lasting longer and longer. What was once a day or two per summer is now a week or more, a couple of times per summer. Steve and I decided it was time to get central air conditioning. And yet we were torn. If we get air conditioning, we're contributing to the whole environmental problem. There was a clear answer. In order to be okay with getting air conditioning, the responsible thing to do was have solar panels installed so we could actually lower or even eliminate our energy usage from the grid while getting cooler at the same time. This sounded like a daunting effort to undertake, but we finally got the energy to start the project and get it done. I think it's a value based on the numerous questions we've that have come as Steve has posted photos of our progress to get solar panels installed in our house, and so I, I'm, I'm hoping that you find this of interest. Many of our friends and acquaintances are asking the right questions and are telling us that they're overwhelmed by the prospect of doing this, and yet they really want to get solar. So I'm help, hoping that this uh, article is going to help you get motivated to do it yourself. Before I dig into the decisions we've made, I need to give you a little background on our house and our electricity needs because it dramatically changed how we had to have it done. So some of this stuff may not apply to you, so I want you to know what what we had to do so you know what would apply to you. When we bought my Tesla, we had a Tesla charger installed in our garage. This required a connection to our electrical panel on the side of the house. During this process, I learned that the car charger would be hooked to a 50-amp circuit. That number is important because our oven also requires 50 amps and our electrical panel is limited to 100 amps. I never knew that I couldn't bake cookies, charge my car, and then turn on a hairdryer. Good thing I don't bake cookies, right? Well, in order to add air conditioning, we learned that it would also require a 50 amp circuit. Well, obviously that isn't going to work if we've already used up all of the 100 amps. The electrician who will do our air conditioning made a proposal to put in a 200-amp panel to replace the existing 100-amp panel. As it turns out, adding solar to our house also requires an additional 50-amp circuit. Now, that was actually good news, because as of the time of this writing, the United States has a 26% federal tax credit on the cost of installing solar. That means if we have the solar company do the installation of the $200, the 200 amp panel, it'll be 26% cheaper than if the air conditioning installer does it. I want to put a disclaimer here. Whatever you do, do not take my word for anything to do with your taxes, okay? Please look it up yourself, verify it independently, because I'm not a tax accountant and I don't know what I'm talking about. All right, so that was the decision we made about who to have put in the 200 amp panel. 
Now, the next thing to know about our house is that we have Spanish-style clay tiles for our roof. Another installment of Today I Learned is that clay tiles form a protective roof only if they're left undisturbed. You cannot drill through them to attach solar panels and maintain the integrity of the roof. So in order to add solar panels to our house, they had to remove all of the clay tiles on the sections of the roof where the panels will go, install a traditional asphalt, I'll get that right, asphalt shingle roof, install the solar panels over those shingles, and then add back the clay tiles around the panels to blend in with the rest of the tile roof. They'll basically be decorative tiles after that. The main reason I told you all about that house is that when people ask me how much it costs, it's important to remember everyone's house is different. You may have a very simple job, or you may have a complex job like ours. Now, the first thing I did to start the solar project was to go to Project Sunroof, created by Google. According to their About Us, Project Sunroof puts Google's expansive data in mapping and computing resources to use, helping calculate the best solar plan for you. So with Project Sunroof, you can type in your home address and they'll show you a satellite view of your house in a heat map style. The amount of sunlight received on your roof is and averaged over a day is shown in regions as bright yellow, which is super sunny, orange, which is not as sunny, and then purple, which would be shady. Along with the heat map, they actually calculate how many usable hours of sunlight your roof experiences per year and an approximation of how many square feet you have available to install solar panels. This even takes into account 3D modeling of your roof and any nearby trees that might foil your attempts to get energy from the sun. Now, unfortunately, Project Sunroof is only available in the United States, and it isn't even all of the U.S. just yet. But if you do live in an area that hasn't been mapped, it's pretty cool. If you enter your average monthly electric bill into Project Sunroof, they'll tell you your recommended solar installation size and then calculate how long it will take to pay off. I haven't gone back and completely double-checked any of what Google Solar told me, but it was fun to use for speculation. Once you start down the path of installing solar, your friends and family will come out of the woodwork asking for your advice. I know this to be true, because as soon as we started thinking about solar, I asked my friend Tom Merritt who he went with, and he gave us some really good advice. Tom started with a solar broker called Energy Sage, and then he chose one of the companies that contacted him through that broker. Using the Energy Sage website, you enter data about your home's location, layout, and your annual energy needs. They then distribute the information to several pre-screened solar installers, all of which are licensed and insured. They have an extensive network of installers, but they'll select the top five or six that best meet your needs and provide you quotes from those companies. The quotes are detailed and include information such as cost, the size of the proposed system in kilowatts, and the number of solar panels, battery storage, estimates for power production over a year, and payback period. From the list, you select your preferred installer, and from that point forward, you work directly with the installer. Now, Steve is a program manager back in his gainful employment days, so he took charge of this project, and boy, am I glad he did. He took all of the initial estimates of the companies who responded from from Energy Sage, and he put them into a spreadsheet and started to compare their offerings. More importantly, he went to Yelp and the Better Business Bureau to find out how long they'd been in business and how well-regarded they were by the people who chose them as their solar provider. We chose a company called Solar Optimum, which coincidentally is the same company Tom went with. So far, we're pretty happy with the work they've done. Working with Solar Optimum, we firmed up the system design, including the number of solar panels, their locations on our roof, some electrical rework that we needed, and of course, the cost. Then we finalized our contract. 
We decided not to take the lease option to cover the cost of the system, but instead to purchase the system outright. Our system ended with 22 370-watt solar panels, which in total produce a peak power of 8.14 kilowatts. Now, we decided not to have a battery installed at this time for reasons I'll explain in a bit. Estimated energy production over a year with this set of solar panels is 10,635 kilowatt hours, and the estimated payback for the cost of the system is seven years, given given our usage levels and energy costs. Now, that's seven years is exactly what Google Solar, the Project Sunroof, said. We were surprised to learn that solar has now gotten down low enough or electrical costs high enough that the payoff was that soon to be seven years. That's amazing. We looked at it maybe a decade ago, and the payoff at the time was more like 20 years. Now, probably the most frequent question we get asked is whether we bought a battery storage to go along with our solar setup. In particular, people say, did you get a Tesla battery? We did not, and there are two reasons. For some, a significant reason for having whole home battery storage is for backup power in the event of an outage. Since we can count on one hand the number of power outages we've had lasting more than an hour over the past 30 years, outages were not a big enough reason to install a battery. Another pro for a battery is that it can provide conditioning for power entering your home. You know, think of it like a giant UPS for the entire house. This helps protect your home electronics from power surges and spikes on the grid. But we don't have severe weather in our location and have addressed the few power surges we get with portable UPSs protecting our most valuable electronics. Now, if the quality of the power grid becomes worse in the future, or if we find we're using more power than we anticipated, we'll consider installing a whole house battery to complement our solar power. The second reason it didn't make sense for us is because in the state of California, they have a thing called net energy metering, or sometimes just called net metering. I did a lot of spreadsheet work on this when Lindsay was analyzing solar uh, and whether a battery would be right for her. It got really complicated, but I finally figured out how it works. Again, this is in California, and you may or may not have net metering available to you. Here's my simplistic explanation of how net metering works, and I've got a link to the, uh, the documentation on this for the state of California so you can get the real scoop. So here's how I think it works. For a full year, you generate electricity via solar, and you consume electricity from the grid. At the end of the year, your energy company subtracts the two, so you effectively get credit for every kilowatt you generate up to the amount you consume. If you consume more than you produce, you pay them the delta at retail prices at the end of the year. If you produce more than you consume, they pay you the delta, but only at wholesale prices. This prevents customers from becoming competitors to the power company by earning as much as they do on excess energy they produce without having to pay for the power infrastructure. That sounds like a quote from them. I think it's cheating. But anyway, that's the way it works. This net metering concept incentivizes you to try to match your production to your consumption needs. It'd be nice to pay nothing for power, but since the power company pays you pennies on the dollar for excess you generate, you don't want to put in more solar panels than you need either. To reiterate a point, it is important to understand what the rules are where you live. Maybe you have lots of power outages. Maybe you don't have net metering, but they do let you use power from the battery when the sun goes down. This is part of the discovery of going solar for you. Another question we've been asked is why we don't use the ginormous batteries in our Teslas to help power our house. Turns out Tesla cars do not support providing energy from their battery to an external load. Maybe Tesla will support that feature in the future, but it would require a hardware modification to our Teslas and to the charger we've installed in our garage. But hey, ever hopeful, right? 
Now, if I had to give you one bit of advice on any home improvement project, everybody who's done one, say it with me. Don't take the schedule they give you too seriously. Think of it more as a guideline. They told us they'd start on Monday and finish on Friday, and that we'd have one of those days without power as they switched over to the new electrical panel and solar. This takes me back to the first time I had to make a schedule for work, and I assumed everything would go perfectly and according to plan and nothing expected would happen. My first boss, Dave Hiley, laughed hysterically at the schedule I came up with. All home improvement projects are just like that. They're going to tell you something, and it's not going to be true. Now, even on a relatively simple job like this, there are a lot of moving pieces and different people to coordinate. The roofers came to tear off the tiles, then they looked for damage to the plywood that's been under the tiles for the last 30 years in an area known to be built out of termites. They fix whatever problems they find. All right, believe it or not, that only took one day. But then there are the inspectors. The city has to approve that the damage was fixed properly. If you hear, quote, we have to wait for the city inspector, unquote, do you have any expectation that a job even putting on a hose nozzle would be done in one week? Surprisingly, though, we got very lucky. The city inspection was done much more quickly than we would have expected. And oddly enough, we have COVID to thank for it. During COVID, the city had to come up with a way to do inspections without people intermingling. They settled on a safe method where the roofers show the inspector the damaged and repaired areas over a FaceTime video call. Our areas lifted most restrictions, almost everything, because our vaccination rates are really high. Consequently, our case counts are super low. But the city seems to have figured out this FaceTime method is a much more efficient way to work, so they continue using this method of inspection. There seems to be a high-tech angle to just about everything in our world these days. The electricians were also really efficient. Our electrical panel is inside an enclosure with two doors for access to the front of the panel. The stucco enclosure protrudes from the stucco walls on the side of our house so it blends in nicely. The opening to the enclosure wasn't big enough for the 200 amp panel, so they had to open up the stucco quite a bit, which in theory will be completely built back together with the new doors before the final payment on this project is finished. It's not done yet. In just one day, they opened up the stucco enclosure, disconnected us from main power, replaced the main power lines running through the overhead riser, removed the old 100-amp panel, installed the new 200-amp panel, along with the inverter controller and a solar cutoff switch, and reconnected us to power. And we were only without power for six hours. Okay, so technically, we did still have the power because of the generosity of our neighbor Rick when he gave us that extension cord from his house. One of the crazy things they had to do was drill down through our concrete patio slab in two places to bury eight foot deep, two and a half, that's two and a half meters, eight foot deep copper grounding rods. I guess this is part of some new electrical code that didn't exist when our house was built, but I for one feel much safer now. That's the kind of thing I would have never known about either before starting this adventure. When they were done, Again, they had to wait for an inspector, and again, they did it via FaceTime. It was fabulously efficient. They got it done the same day. For Christmas, I surprised Steve with a DJI Mavic drone. He had a DJI from before, but it was back from when they were huge, they didn't collapse down at all, they didn't come with cameras, and even with a gimbal mount he installed himself on it for a GoPro, it didn't really have the best stabilization. With the DJI Mavic, the 4K video stability is spectacular, and it takes phenomenal still photos. Better yet, it folds up into a little case about the size of a camcorder. 
When we first started the solar project, Solar Optimum was designing the layout of our panels using a really poor quality photo of our roof. I think it was actually from Google's satellite view. So Steve took his drone for a spin and got a fantastic high-res photo of our roof from exactly overhead. He sent it to Solar Optimum and it gave them a much better idea of where little vents and pipes were sticking up and the shadow from the chimney would be. Throughout the whole process of putting in solar, Steve's been using his drone to take photos, and it was really cool to see the roof beforehand, then see all the tiles removed, then see the shingle roof, and then see the solar panels actually up on the roof, and finally the solar panels and the original tiles back in place. Now, it wasn't just nifty and fun to show off on social media. We discovered one broken tile on a roof portion they didn't work on, and we were able to go back through the photos and see exactly where it went from whole to broken. They didn't question it, the, you know, the fact that they broke it, but it was still nice to have that in our back pocket just in case. Shortly before writing this up, we got word from Southern California Edison that we had the approval to flip the big switch to turn on our solar panels. This was a huge surprise because Solar Optimum told us that it would take four to six weeks for that approval, and it only took one single day. It was so much fun for Steve to get to throw this giant switch to turn them on. Now, Right away, Solar Optimum wasn't ready yet, and they hadn't entered all the information for each panel and inverter so that we could see it in an app. And the guy said it was going to take, I think, five, three to five days for them to type in all this stuff. And I, I had to give him a hard time. I was like, wait a minute, you had an electrician tear out our, our electrical panel, shut off the power drill, eight foot uh, copper rods to ground the system and put in the new one. In one day, you had guys take the, the roof off and put in, in one single day, and you're telling me to type this stuff into a little form is going to take three to five days? Anyway, it turns out they, uh, they got it ready the next day. So we are now able to look at what's called the Enphase app and be able to see our data. So you can bet that Steve and I are obsessing over what the graphs look and how often the data is getting updated. And I expect that we'll have a lot of more information on how this part of it goes after we've had a few weeks to play with it. Anyway, that's what happens when engineers marry. You know we love the data. I hope this has helped you understand the different pieces that go into putting solar in. If you take out the part about having to replace the roof and you take out the part about having to replace the electrical panel, there really wasn't that much time put in to doing this. It was actually a fairly simple process. It feels daunting and it's, of course, anxiety driven and it does cost a fair amount of money out of pocket. But to see a payoff as quick as seven years and to know that you're doing something to help the environment rather than hurting it by getting air conditioning, I think this is something really important for people to look into if they can afford to get it done. I talked on the show a while back about how one of the downsides to an M1 Mac is that you can't run Windows on an M1 Mac, or at least not without a lot of faffing about. I was actually surprised that in Nightwise recording about how much value he's getting from his M1 MacBook Air, he never mentioned that as a downside. Nightwise's mantra is making technology work for you. And the center of that is, is being a slider who can use the best tool for the job rather than being fanatically attached to one company's technology, you know, like some people we know. He's touted the Mac as the best platform because he can run Mac OS, Linux, and Windows all on one piece of hardware. When I asked him about this limitation of the M1, he said he didn't see it as an issue, and I wasn't really sure why, but that he hadn't looked into whether he, the open source virtual machine software VirtualBox would run on the M1, or at least to run a Linux distribution, or distro as the cool kids call them. 
I did a bit of poking around into what virtual machine software does run on the M1s as of right now, and I discovered that VirtualBox from Oracle and the commercial software VMware Fusion, as of right now, do not, but Parallels Desktop does. And then I discovered an open source virtual machine app that I hadn't heard of called UTM, which runs on M1 and it actually runs on iOS. Sadly, you have to jailbreak your iOS device to do that, so I declined that opportunity. But I thought running this on macOS Big Sur sounded like good fun. Under the hood of UTM is something called QEMU, not sure what it stands for, but it's a decades-old free and open source emulation software that's widely used and actively maintained. The value that UTM brings to QEMU, in theory, is that it's got a graphical user interface not requiring a plethora of command line options and flags, so the learning curve is much more gentle. I found an article by Steve Sandy on the OWC blog where he walks through the steps to configure UTM on an M1 Mac and install Windows on ARM for free, legitimately. As I mentioned before, Windows on ARM isn't really supported to do this, and even if I succeeded at this, apps would have to be compiled for 64-bit ARM to run on it. This makes it a fun experiment, possibly a colossal waste of time, and when I'm done, I'm going to have something I don't need. <laughs> well, of course, that was all the motivation I needed to proceed with the project. Now, I'm not going to go through the installation process in detail because Steve Sandy does a fabulous job of it. He tells you what to download, how to configure it, and which buttons to push to make it all go, along with screenshots to make sure it's clear what he's telling you to do. I will, however, go through kind of an overview of how this works so you have context for my discovery and going through his steps. Virtual machine software works by creating an image that is the virtual machine. You need two things to make an image work properly an operating system, and what are called guest tools that are tailored to your hardware. Without the guest tools for a virtual machine, your mouse and keyboard may not work, your Wi-Fi won't be recognized, perhaps sound won't come out of your speakers, and you have more problems. To run Windows 10 for ARM64, it turns out Microsoft allows you to do a free download if you sign up for a free membership in the Windows Insider program. Those are the words I wanted to hear, so I signed up. The file you download has an extension of VHDX, which stands for Hyper-V Virtual Hard Disk. The UTM virtualization software points you to a gallery of operating system virtual machines you can run and download, which are mostly different distributions of Linux. That might be even more fun than running Windows. You'll see ARM64 versions, er, an ARM64 version of Windows 10, but if you're on an Intel-based Mac, you can only run Windows 7 or Windows XP. It's kind of weird that you can't get Windows 10 on Intel, but maybe Microsoft doesn't let you have that one for free because it's actually useful. Steve's instructions walk you through how to configure a virtual machine, including setting the architecture to ARM64, choosing how much RAM to allocate, how to create the virtual disk for the operating system, and install the guest tools, which for UTM they call SPICE guest tools to make it work with your hardware. When Steve explains how to add drives, he shows how to point the Windows 10 OS that you've downloaded from Microsoft, how to point to that. Then he explains how to create a virtual CD DVD drive and point that to the Spice Guest Tools. As soon as I pointed to the Spice, test, the Spice Guest Tools, UTM crashed. When I opened UTM back up, my image for Windows had not been preserved. No worries, it was just a few steps. As soon as I tried to point it at the Windows VHDX file, I got an error saying it couldn't be copied to images because an item with that same name already exists. I was faced with some temporary file not having gotten flushed when it crashed, but where on earth would I find this temp file? 
Luckily, UTM is an open source project on GitHub, and under the Issues tab, I found Morak2 describing the same issue. Even luckier, Morak2 figured out where this temporary file was so I could delete it and try again. On my second time through the image creation instructions from Steve Sandy, I was able to save without a crash. However, when I tried to point the Spice guest tools on the virtual machine removable drive to try point at those, I got another error saying it couldn't restore removable drives. All right, back to the Googles, and I found someone with the same problem, and they were advised to clear the Spice guest tools from the CD slash DVD and try booting into Windows without it. Presumably, that would get a clean boot into Windows, and then we could back out and try the Spice guest tools again. Sadly, after getting stuck at the bootloader for ages, I got a Microsoft stop code for inaccessible boot device, and then it was going to restart, which happened over and over and over again. I believe, based on the baby blue background, I was experiencing a blue screen of death. And as much fun as this was, I decided it was time to abandon that whole path and see if I could get something normal like Ubuntu to install. From the Ubuntu gallery, I downloaded the Ubuntu 20.04 image, but it directed me to download Ubuntu Server. I didn't want Ubuntu Server, so I hunted down the Ubuntu desktop operating system for ARM on my own. It wasn't hard, but it was another step. The step-by-step -step instructions on the UTM website were super easy to follow, and yet I was unable to boot into Ubuntu. I went back to the beginning of the instructions on the UTM website and realized that to use UTM with Ubuntu, you install the server first and then install the desktop version from within the server. <laughs> Convoluted convolut much? Well, anyway, I created the VM again, and as soon as I tried to point to the OS installer, it said I didn't have permissions to images. Well, that doesn't make any sense. You let me access them like a minute ago. How could permissions have changed like that? Well, let's just turn it off and on again. I quit UTM and reopened it, and then it let me point at the Ubuntu server ISO file. Yay! Now I've got my Ubuntu VM configured exactly per the instructions, even including changing the icon to make it look like Ubuntu. And when I hit the big play button, it fails to load and gets stuck at the UEFI interactive shell. The only thing on this entire page I recognized was the acronym EFI, which is the firmware on a Mac. At this point, someone with less fortitude or more common sense would have given up. Not me. Off to the Googles yet again, and I find this issue on the UTM Apps GitHub pages as well. The interesting thing is that one of the developers tests a fix within this, closes the issue, and then shortly after that reopens the issue because the failure didn't go away. Luckily, he posted a fix in the troubleshooting section of the Ubuntu installer page for UTM. Now, you're going to love his answer. All I had to do is verify that I saw FF0 colon alias CD0H0A0A colon colon BLK1 colon at the top of the UEFI interactive shell window. And then all I had to do was type in FS0 colon backslash, oh wait, that's forward slash? I never know which one was which. EFI slash boot slash boot AA64.EFI. And then I should just see grub and be able to select the Ubuntu server. Well, you know, that's exactly what I was thinking of typing, just that it's good to verify, you know, right? Anyway, I typed in that bunch of glop I don't understand, and the shell came back with the response, command error status unsupported. I'm not joking. My only move after that was to make a comment on the GitHub issue on the topic and move right along. You know what, though? I just couldn't let this go without getting one operating system to work as a VM with UTM. I looked at all the other options, and I chose one called Arch Linux Arm. I chose it because I'd never heard of it. Unlike Ubuntu, where it gave the ISO image of the OS, 
Arch Linux gave me a UTM file, which is a fully in configured virtual machine. So I double clicked it. It opened inside UTM and I didn't have to do any setup at all. I clicked the play button and it typed a lot of Unixy looking glop on screen for me, pausing for dramatic effect from time to time and then starting to change again. And then it stopped changing for a really long time. I hit the enter key just for grins and giggles. It responded with alarm login. Well, I don't know what that meant, but on the download page, it said the username and login are root and root. So what the heck? I'll try that. It spat a bunch more glop on screen, including a whole bunch of process IDs, none of which made any sense to me, and ended with a simple command line prompt that said root alarm at and a hashtag. So, like, it was just a command line prompt. So, again, I'm stuck. Remember how this UTM software was supposed to hide the command line work that I would have had to do in QEMU? <laughs> yeah, not so much. I was determined, though, I was not going to let this virtual machine software defeat me. I kept plowing ahead, and I moved on to try Debian ARM XFCE. Apparently, this XFCE version of Debian is intended to be a lightweight desktop environment, and that sounded fun. Debian also downloaded, a, also downloaded as a fully configured UTM file, and with a double click, I was off to the races. You're not going to believe this, but it worked. I was as shocked as you are. I simply booted up and I was in Linux. The screen resolution was super low, so I found in settings how to change the display and it looked grand. I opened up Firefox, navigated to podfeed.com, as one does, and it looked dandy. But when I went to move the window around, the screen tearing was simply awful. As I, as I dragged the window, it was just, oh, it just looked terrible. I thought maybe it was because the default installation was only set to two gigabytes of RAM, so I changed it to eight gigabytes, but that had no effect. Then I realized there isn't a guest installer for this distribution. I did a short hunt for them online, but I got to admit that after spending about three hours on this little project, it wasn't my best effort. I never did find the guest tools, but I declared victory and I ended my little project. And yet, there was still a little niggle in my brain that said, you know what, those instructions from Steve Sandy should have worked to install Windows on ARM. Earlier in some of my Googling, I'd run across a video about installing Windows on the M1 using UTM by someone who goes by the name of Mr. Macintosh. I decided to watch his video and see if there was something I might have missed. About three and a half minutes in, he hit the spot where I realized my mistake. In Steve Sandy's instructions, he clearly said that when adding the drive in the virtual machine for Windows, you had to choose NVMe as the interface. I have no idea why, but Steve did tell me. I am 100% certain I did that the first time I tried it, but remember I had some crashes and I had to do it over and over again? I'm relatively certain I didn't remember to set that in any of my subsequent attempts. I'm pretty sure I left it at the default VR, what is it, V-I-R-T-L-O, virtual I-O, I guess, whatever the heck that is. I had to try this one more time. Guess what? It worked. I got into Windows, I had to answer a whole bunch of annoying Windows questions, like three security questions that I bet 100% of you could answer without a minute, with you know, maybe a minute of Googling, but then I was in. And no, of course, I didn't tell the truth on any of the security questions. Once I had Windows 10 up in UTM, and I got a screenshot so I could prove it worked, it was time to get it working even better. The first improvement I wanted to make was to raise the screen resolution as it defaulted to 640 by 480. Mr. McIntosh gave instructions on how to interrupt the boot of the VM and get to the device manager to change the preferred resolution all the way up to a maximum of 1024 by 768. I did that, rebooted, and Windows failed to launch. 
gave me a blue screen of death again, this time with the beloved stop code, which evidently it was stop code 0XC002E3, which I looked it up. It evidently means something has gone horribly wrong. I tried rebooting into the device manager and undoing the crime of setting my screen resolution higher than a postage stamp, but Windows was clearly mad at me and refused to boot. I started from scratch again. After the new VM was created, it booted just fine, albeit at 640 by 480, but I left that well enough alone. The VM wasn't recognizing my wired or wired uh, my wired or wireless Ethernet card, so I decided to try to get that sorted. A VM without networking isn't much fun. So I shut down Windows, closed the VM, went into settings, found a network tab in UTM where I could choose my real network card. Great! And when I opened Windows, it blue screened again. Through repeated experiments, I determined that Windows 10 is one-time use if running in UTM on an M1 Mac Mini. I circled back with Steve Sandy and he dusted off his Windows 10 installation in UTM from last March when he wrote the article and he confirmed that he now gets a blue screen of death as well. I opened an issue on GitHub and he added his configuration and information to my issue. And since then, a bunch of other people have said, yeah, me too, me too, me too. Someone has posted a solution to it, but it has to do with changing that VH, what was it, VHSX uh, file that Windows was downloaded to change it into another format. And it's a whole bunch of command line stuff. I might still do it, but not right now. Anyway, I kind of wished when I'd contacted Steve when it wasn't working for me that he would have said, oh, you dummy, you forgot to blah, blah, blah. But I guess getting confirmation that something broke is broken is the next best thing. I was finishing up the article after finally calling it quits when Steve Sandy mentioned he was able to get Ubuntu working with UTM. That was the first Linux operating system I tried to get set up in UTM. So you know what I had to do, right? I had to try again. I'm not going to take you through all of it, but after a few fits and starts that took maybe only another couple of hours, I actually got that working too. In fact, I did the write-up about this about Ubuntu on this article from inside of Ubuntu's virtual machine on UTM. I'm pretty chuffed that I got it working, and it's better than anything else I tried, but this uh, Ubuntu does have the same screen-tearing problem that I had with Debian. Networking is working, and I can play audio through it, and I can even copy and paste now between macOS and Linux. I haven't figured out how to install apps yet, but as soon as I do, I'll be installing 1Password now that that's available for Linux. I don't need Linux, but it sure is fun to be able to play with. You know, this has all got me to thinking, maybe this is why it's worth the money to pay for something like Parallels Desktop or virtual uh, VMware Fusion when it does get working. Because I'm, I'm just spitballing here, but it might be a little smoother if you're doing it through a, a commercial project. So I didn't ever get Windows to run in a VM, which was my original goal, but at least I got a workable Linux VM to run. I think I should have put a pin in this by taking you back to one of the first things I said. I said, this makes this a fun experiment, possibly a colossal waste of time. And when I'm done, I'll have something I didn't need. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. I hope you were able to have a happy holiday if you're in the United States or, uh, I don't know, just a nice weekend if you're not. And uh, I hope you appreciated getting an episode early this week. Don't forget, there is no live show this Sunday. This is coming out on Saturday. Tomorrow, Sunday, there will not be an episode on the 4th of July. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, everything is fiddly recordings, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeed.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeed. 
Remember, everything good starts with podfee.com. You want to become a patron? Go to podfee.com slash Patreon. You want to donate one time through PayPal? podfee.com slash PayPal. Want to join the conversation? Try our Slack community over at podfee.com slash Slack, or you can do it through Facebook at podfee.com slash Facebook. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, not on July 4th, but starting back up on July, what would that be, 11th? Head on over to podfee.com slash live at Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Lucilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.